Howell Windows and Doors of Wisconsin's energy-efficient windows keep the cold outside where it belongs, lowering energy bills. Get 0% interest up to the year 2029 if you book by January 31st. Visit PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line. Old National Bank. Get old. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Lots of ground to cover state issues, local issues, cultural issues, national issues. We're going to cover it all over the course of the next three hours. So let's get to it. The Milwaukee, the Milwaukee, the Mall of America, you know, the huge shopping complex. Don't know if you've been there, but it, it's got if it's got pretty much everything. If you cannot find it in the Mall of America, you do not need it. I can guarantee you that. So the Mall of America has, like many malls have, they have various rules. For example, they have a policy that disapproves of apparel clothing that has obscene language, obscene gestures, or racial, religious, ethnic slurs that are likely to cause a disturbance. Okay, so they disapprove of that. They also, as a policy, prohibit soliciting. And so in other words, they they don't want people in the Mall of America going up to shoppers and begging money for this, that, or the other thing. All right, and that's, I think, a rule that makes, you know, a lot of sense. The problem becomes, how do you enforce it? So let me tell you a story about something that happened about a week and a half ago. And if you want to see photos of this, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 because I've got a link to the story, and you can see the guy, and you can see what he's wearing. So there's a guy who, like I say, the incident I'm going to talk about happened about a week and a half ago. About two weeks ago, he was in the Mall of America, and he was preaching. You know, he's a, a devout Christian, and he was preaching. And so what happened is security guards came up to him and they said, you are not allowed to preach. We view this as a a form of soliciting, and here you're going to have to leave. And so he was tossed out of the Mall of America for, again, standing in the Mall of America and preaching. All right? So no complaints there. I think everybody understands that that's reasonable. A few days later, he comes back to the Mall of America, and this time he is not preaching. He is not verbally doing anything, but he's wearing a T-shirt. And on the front of the T-shirt, and I'm looking at it now, and again, if you want to see a photo of this, follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 On the front of the T-shirt, it says, Jesus saves. And on the back of the T-shirt, it says, Jesus is the only way. And then it's got that, that coexist thing, you know, with the, the peace sign and stuff, and it's got a box with that, and it's crossed out. So Jesus, and then the coexist box crossed out is the only way. All right? So he's in the Mall of America. He's not verbally doing anything. He's just wearing the T-shirt. So apparently what happens is... Again, the policy prohibits picketing, demonstrating, soliciting, protesting, or petitioning on the premises. So the guy is in the mall. He's not begging money. He's not preaching like he was before. He's just walking through the wall wearing this T-shirt. A security guard comes up to him and says, you have to either take off the T-shirt or 
leave the mall. To which he says, well, well wait a second. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not actively preaching. I'm just wearing the T-shirt. And one of the security guards, and this is kind of captured on video, says, sir, this is religious soliciting. Religious soliciting by wearing the shirt that says Jesus saves. There is no soliciting on mall property, which is private property. The guard further says that there were people who say that they were offended by the shirt. Offended by the shirt that he's wearing that says Jesus saves. And so because some people were offended by the shirt. The guy specifically, it's in the men says, well, who, the, the guy wearing the shirt says, well, who could be offended by this? And the guard says, Jesus is associated with religion and it's offending people. All right. So the Mall of America says, you've got to either take off the shirt or you have to leave, but you are not going to be allowed to stay in the Mall of America wearing that shirt. As you might expect, this story has gone national number of people are very, very concerned with the Mall of America. And, um, for example, I'm looking at some of the responses that are coming out of the religious community saying there is no way that this should happen in the USA. The man has a free speech right to wear the shirt and freedom of religion to practice his faith in public places. More people should wear Christian shirts to the mall. Another pastor says he should sue them into oblivion. This wouldn't have happened anywhere in the U.S. until very recently, and it certainly wouldn't have happened if he'd had on a pride shirt and even if 50 people had complained. Others say they plan to wear Jesus shirts and masks to the shopping mall as a protest. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, let, let's tee this up. Obviously, the Mall of America has every right to stop its its shoppers from being pestered. And, and so that's why they have the no soliciting rule. That's why they decide that they don't want politicians campaigning on mall grounds. So they have this kind of broad policy that's there. They also have a policy against clothing that is going to be deemed to be offensive. So here's the question. Because a couple people are upset that the guy's wearing the Jesus saves and Jesus is the only way T-shirt, is that a basis for tossing them out? And is just wearing a T-shirt that says Jesus saves, is that religious soliciting? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Jeff, did they ask the owners of cars with the coexist bumper stickers to leave as well? No, um, I don't think that that is the case. Jeff, it depends. How do they handle Black Lives Matter, Pride, Muslim, etc. clothing? I have my suspicions. As far as I know, no people are asked to leave because of that. Jeff, I'm a Packers fan. If I wore a shirt that says the Bears still suck, could them all throw me out? Well, I guess that's the question. Would they throw you out for wearing that T-shirt? My guess is there's probably stores in the Mall of America that might sell T-shirts that say that. Jeff, if they're okay with no religious statements, then I assume they'll no longer accept currency that states in God we trust, guessing that that doesn't happen. Jeff, will it be that someday we can't wear an American flag on a shirt either? Well, you know, maybe. 
Maybe. Jeff, I wonder if the reaction would have been the same if the T-shirt had a hammer and sickle written on it. My money is uh, no. Jeff, just because you're offended doesn't make you right. How about LGBTQ T-shirts? Um, some people might find that is offensive. Um, let's see. Uh, Jeff, Mall of America doesn't care if a Jesus shirt results in a purchase. This is just a weirdo who doesn't buy anything who's been tossed before for shouting at people. That's called loitering. They didn't throw him out for loitering. That's the key. If they would have said, sir, we believe that you are are loitering here and we don't allow loitering here and we're going to toss you out for that, that that would be one thing. But that's not why they went up to him. They went up to him and said, we're not. They said, you can stay. It wasn't like they were throwing him out for loitering. They said, the problem is you are wearing this particular T-shirt and some people are offended by. Buy the T-shirt that you have. Danny in Janesville. Danny, you're on WTMJ. Well, it sounds like I'm the one jerk calling. <laughs> well, don't um, be a jerk. You, you can disagree and not be a jerk. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I, think probably they handled it slightly the wrong way. You know, I mean, you know, it's kind of overkill kicking them out. But I can see where the shirt would be a problem, only because... Okay, it was just that Jesus saves them there. It's like, okay, fine. It's not really religious solicitation, you know, fine. But when it has the coexist symbol that shows, you know, all the different religions and so on, with an X through it, or, you know, the the no sign, you know, whatever you want to call it, okay, now all of a sudden you're saying, well, Jesus is all that there is, and these religions don't matter. Mm-hmm. And now me personally, I'm not offended by that. But I can see how that's, you know... I don't want to say an advertisement for Christianity, but it's somebody that's kind of pushing their beliefs out there. Well, sure he is. You know what? Well, sure he is. I mean, sure he's pushing his beliefs out there, yeah. Yeah, and I just just look at that, and I'm just like, you know, if, if it just said, you know, Jesus is all, fine, nothing wrong with that. You know, that's okay. But when it has the the no symbol on there with all the other ones, it's basically like you're, you're kind of pooping on all the other ones and saying, well, your religion doesn't matter. Okay. If, let me just, if he had a, let's say one of the, the thin blue line, you know, the pro police shirts, would, would that be appropriate? Because some people might be offended by that. Now, see, I don't, I don't see how being pro police can really be offensive unless you're a criminal. You know, there's a lot of people it, who feel that a, way, though. I mean, a lot of people yeah, are offended I'm, by that, 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 that thin blue line shirt. They think that um, that's a symbol of police oppression, oppression and you're supporting yeah, and I, and I you know, police brutality. I, I, think, I think this is just, you know, it's, it's a really kind of slippery slope to be on. You know, where, like I said, you know, it's not like he's really doing outright overt solicitation. But at the same point, he kind of is. You know, by like I said, saying Jesus is all and having the the no symbol through all the other ones. You know, I can see how people would be offended, but you know, even if I was offended by it, I I would just be like, well, geez, what well, a jerk, and leave well, it. Thanks for calling. Yeah, Danny. I, that, I guess see that's the that's the problem, and you're exactly right that it is a a slippery slope. So if somebody is offended by a Black Lives Matter T-shirt, just, just again. Do, does and somebody else comes up and says, "Well, I find that to be uh, offensive," 
or the Thin Blue Line t-shirt or any of these other sorts of things. I, I guess the question is, are you going to toss them out? One of our texters says that they were at Mayfair Mall the other day and there was a guy walking around that had um, the F word, <laughs> the t-shirt. Now, that that to me, I mean, that's clearly obscene and I would not, if, if that was a case where you had a security guard that went up to him and said, sir, you know, that's just inappropriate here. There's kids that are shopping and stuff like that. There's parents who are here with kids. We're trying to create a family environment and walking around with a t-shirt that has that particular word on it. This defeats our purpose. If they were tossing somebody out for that, I would be 100% in support of it. I don't see that as being this particular situation though. And, and the idea that the t-shirt is religious soliciting. See, that's what, that's what they told him. A couple people like, like you, Danny, are, are making the point that, well, you know, it's, it's not that Jesus saves. It's the fact that he has, you know, Jesus is the way and then the coexist thing with the, with the box. That, that makes, brings it into a different category. But again, that's not what the security guards told him. The security guard said the shirt is religious soliciting. And that's what was creating the controversy, which raises the question, if you go in there and you're wearing a cross or you're wearing a, a star of David, um, if you're wearing something that displays your religious belief, is that religious soliciting to the point that you cannot wear that shirt in the mall? It is a very slippery slope. I think the Mall of America overreacted to this. Now, maybe... Maybe what's going on here is the guy was tossed out a week ago and he was preaching and they didn't want him back. And here he comes. He's back again. We want to get rid of him. Well, okay, if you want to go after him for loitering or something like that, that, that's fine. But when you start saying, okay, people are offended by the message on your T-shirt and we're not going to let you in, I, I think you are singling him out. You are creating huge problems for yourself and now it's going to be interesting because like i said i think there's a lot of groups that are organizing events where lots of people go to the mall of america now wearing you know shirts that proclaim their religious faith i think the security guards blew it big time in this situation and i think they've got a pr nightmare on their hands there's ways you could have handled it if he was being a problem Okay, then you want to move him along. But to say it's religious soliciting a shirt that says Jesus saves and Jesus is the only way to say that that's going to be offensive to people, I think, is where you make the mistake. Okay, talking about how people get offended about things, Congressman Glenn Grothman finds himself uh, in a little bit of a controversy, and I, I don't think there's anything here. The, the Capitol has reopened to visitors, right? You know, that it was closed down because of security after January 6th and things alike. So Grothman sends out a tweet of him standing in front of his, his office door, and the message is, welcome back, come stop by, we, you know, we're doing tours and things like that. All right, pretty innocuous. In front of his office. He's got an American flag, he's got a state of Wisconsin flag, and he's got this thing called the pine tree flag. The pine tree flag is one of these flags that date back to the American Revolution. It features a pine tree with the motto, An Appeal to Heaven. Um, it was originally used by a squadron of six cruisers, which were commissioned under George Washington's authority as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army in October of 1775. It's the official maritime ensign for the uh, 
ensign for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Okay, so he's got this pine tree flag there. This has become a Twitter-based controversy. Why is it a Twitter-based controversy? Well, because on January 6th, a couple of these yahoos that stormed the Capitol had, among other things, a pine tree flag. Okay, over the last decade or so, um, a handful of these different um, Christian nationalists groups have have displayed the pine tree flag, which, again, has historical significance dating back into the 1770s. So Grothman, and my understanding is he rotates the, these different flags. But he's got flags from the Revolutionary War, etc. So he's got this one outside his office, and now people are all offended. Oh, how dare you, you know, display this pine tree flag, which is subtitled An Appeal to Heaven. That That's on there. Um, without, I don't know if they don't know about or don't care about the historical significance of it, the sole issue is the fact that, okay, a couple of these lunkheads who decided to storm the Capitol or a couple of these, like, crazies on the Internet decided that they were going to make this flag as well as a whole bunch of other flags dating back to the Revolutionary War, they were going to embrace them. So that now means that, okay, Congressman Glenn Grothman or other people cannot display them because if you do, it's a show of unity with the white supremacists or whatever. Instead of just simply saying, look, you've got some crazies that are over here in a box. Let's leave them in a box and let's not get upset about, okay, flags that are historically significant and congressmen who choose to display them. But again, it shows that people get offended and upset about a lot of different stuff. So very glad to have you with us. All right. I told this story a while back on on New Year's Eve, I, I was out, I was at dinner um, at, at a country club, invited to this club by, by friends of ours, and I, I was talking to a number of people who I know, including some people who've gone on a couple of our listener trips and things like that, and I was struck by how many different people I was talking to who were telling me that this was the year that they were going to try to get their six months and a day down in Florida. These are people who had second places in Florida or whatever because they were interested in establishing a residency outside of Wisconsin. Now, these people weren't people who were bailing on Wisconsin. They were going to, they raised their kids here. In many cases, there were folks who were retired and there were folks who, you know, had some degree of, of wealth and they were all talking about Florida and somebody I think was saying North Carolina and somebody else was saying um, Arizona, I, I believe. But the whole conversation was, they were trying to not they were trying to get out of Wisconsin at least for six months and a day because of the tax structure. And, and the, the argument was, boy, look how much in Wisconsin taxes we are compa- we are paying. So, yeah, it is an incentive if you have the ability to do that to go somewhere else. It's also if you are younger. It's an incentive to try to, again, rather than starting your career in Wisconsin, it's an incentive to try to go somewhere else. So in Wisconsin, we're we're fighting the weather, and I understand it's been a comparatively mild January, but it's still January in Wisconsin, and you know you know, you know, know the winter is going to come at some point in time, and it's going to come big time like it did in the end of December when we were looking at the 20-degree below windshield. So you've got the weather, and you've got a tax climate that is incentivizing people to leave the state, and that's not 
a good thing. So in Wisconsin, there's a number of Republicans who are coming forward saying, look, here's the deal. We've got this huge budget surplus. You know, we're looking at like $6 billion in a budget surplus. Now's the time to do what a number of other states are doing, and that is make meaningful tax reform and lower the tax rates for everybody by going to a flat tax. Now, the way it works in Wisconsin now is at the lowest level for people to pay taxes, you pay 3.54%, and it goes up to a top rate of 7.65%. Okay, that's the It's the progressive income tax, where the more money you make, once you hit certain thresholds, the more money you end up paying. So the proposal that's getting written up, actually it's a big piece on it in the Wall Street Journal today, that's coming out of Madison is uh, Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu is saying, look, here's what I want to do. I want to imp- implement a flat tax, which would lower lower the amount of taxes that every Wisconsinite would pay to 3.25%. That would be what the number is. So it it, it doesn't matter really who you are, you will get tax relief. Now, it is true that if you make more money, for example, if you make uh, $100,000, you're going to pay 3.25%, so you're going to be paying, what, $3,200. If you make, you know, $20,000, you know, 3.25% is less. So it's true that people at the lower end of the scale are going to get less tax relief, but the point is they pay a lot less in taxes. Over the last couple years, when you look at the tax packages, it's been designed primarily to benefit middle and lower income people, both with tax reductions and also with different credits and things that are out there. This is an effort to try to say, look, let's really try to promote meaningful tax fairness. Let's get rid of the progressive income tax. Let us allow ourselves to compete maybe with the 14 or 15 other states that already have a flat tax. Michigan has a flat tax rate of 4.25%. Iowa is going down to a flat tax rate of 3.9%. Illinois has a flat tax rate of 4.95%. So in order to be competitive, in order to keep wealthier Wisconsinites from leaving the state and in order to attract younger people to stay in the state, the idea is let's level the tax burden out. 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. So far, Tony Evers is showing no interest in, in, in this at all. He's talking about, okay, let's let's provide more tax relief for people at the lower end of the spectrum. Well, the problem is there, there's not much more of that you can do because people at the lower end of the spectrum pay at least on a dollar amount, they pay very, very little in taxes, where the people who are making a larger amount of money, they are paying most of the taxes. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text. That's, I'm sorry, that's the Old National Bank Talk and Text Line, Old Habits Die Hard. What do you think about a flat tax rate? And is now the time to do it when we have a budget surplus, phase it in, would it help Wisconsinites 
um, make the decision to stay in Wisconsin as they get older, as they start to make more money? And would it make it easier to attract young people to either stay in Wisconsin or to come to Wisconsin in the first place? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. I mean, okay, so here, here's the deal. I mean, you, you have to understand that, first of all, if you would do something like this flat tax, what it would do, it would help a lot of the family businesses that are structured as like pass-through corporations where the business's taxes is based on individual rates. The Wisconsin top rate is out of whack nationally. Okay, our third tier, 5.3%. That is higher than 31 states. So we are sticking it to people who make money more than like 31 states. If you move to a flat tax rate of 3.25%, only 11 states will have a lower top individual rate. This would make us much, much more competitive. And isn't, at the end of the day, isn't that a good thing? Now, I'm not necessarily married to the 3.25% flat tax rate. Maybe the appropriate thing is 3.5%. I, I don't know where that percentage is. But if they're not going to look at meaningful tax reform, which would make Wisconsin more competitive and allow us to treat people in a more fair fashion, I don't know when this would be the occasion to, to do it. 855-616-1620. Dennis in Milwaukee. Dennis, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks a lot for taking my call. Um, sure. You mentioned that uh, a creation of a flat tax will result in us having to pay fewer dollars in taxes, which I think we're all in favor of. But won't the state have to make up this shortfall by increasing, say, the sales tax? Well, not necessarily. I mean, the estimates are that if you, once this is fully implemented, and, and they've rolled out a proposal to kind of phase this in over four years, the estimates are that the state would take in $1.8 billion less in, in revenue than we do under how it's presently structured. What the argument is, is that if you went to a flat tax, it would increase it would increase the likelihood that people w- would stay and be paying taxes in the first place as opposed to, you know, leaving Wisconsin and not paying anything. So that that's that's how you make up for it with in, with people staying, paying more, increased productivity um and growing the economy. Now maybe that works, maybe it doesn't, but that's the argument behind it. Yeah. Okay. okay, that's interesting. I, I can see that. Uh, Jeff, one other point. You mentioned about people leaving Wisconsin and establishing residences in Florida, North Carolina, Arizona for six months and a day. Um, I can see where that be, would be beneficial for the wealthy individuals. But if you're middle uh-huh. class, I, I'm not sure you save that much because, uh, again, Florida doesn't have any income tax. But they, their sales tax has to be pretty high. I, I think you end up paying uh, as much in sales tax as you save by yeah. uh, the not having any any in- income tax. And the other thing too is, I, I'd be afraid to relocate and to have to find a new doctor, a new dentist, yeah. a new bakery, all these new places. And yeah. I, I, I've talked to some people who have moved to Florida for six months and a, and a day and then decide have decided to come back 
because they weren't exactly a fan of the uh, lifestyle hmm. down there. Well, Dennis, thanks for the call. And look, I mean, maybe that that's not for for everybody. And you're right. In Florida, for example, there's a higher sales tax on various things, but especially especially for higher income retirees, you got to pay a lot of sales tax to make up for what you're paying in state income tax. You got to pay a lot in state sales tax and higher auto registration fees if you're a younger higher income earner. And but. But again, I think one of the things that gets lost in this flat tax proposal is everybody gets their taxes reduced. Everybody gets their taxes reduced. Everybody pays less taxes. I think the number that I was looking at is the average, right, the the average family would save more than $900 in taxes under this reform proposal. That's the average family. So Average family gets 900. It is true. If you're paying very, very little now, you, you don't get as much of a savings. And the people that are paying a lot, they, they get more of a per dollar savings. But in, but they're the ones that are paying a lot more money. And they're still going to continue to pay a lot more money. Cause like I say, 3.25% or 3.5% of half a million, let's say, for the sake of argument, that's a lot more in gross dollars than 3.25% of 50,000. So they're still going to have to pay. Ron and Racine. Ron, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, Jeff. Um, I'm on Social Security. Hello. Can you hear yeah, me? Hi. Yep, I can. Go ahead. Hi. Okay, I'm on Social Security, and Social Security is not taxable for Wisconsin. I do cash in a certain amount of my IRAs every year. I don't mm-hmm. pay any state tax at all. I keep it under a certain amount. My question to you is, if they have the flat tax, would I be paying tax state tax then? Because would it come from dollar one the flat tax? Oh, you're you're asking if you if the the amount you withdraw from your IRA from your 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 IRAs or whatever is so low that you don't have enough income to have to pay taxes. I, you know, Ron, I, the honest answer to the question is I do not know. Um, thanks for the call. I, I don't, I don't know. So you're, you're saying that you have very, very little income as a practical matter. You don't generate enough income to even have a tax obligation in the first place. And I'd have to look at what that number is. Um, would you be taxed? I don't think so. But I, I'm not I'm not positive about that, Jeff. To me, this always seems that this has been the fairest way of taxing Wisconsinites. There are numerous programs in place to assist residents that depend on assistance um, for that. Jeff, um, I need I think that the state needs to focus on shared revenue. Too many small communities in the state are struggling because property taxes are one of their main sources of revenue to run those communities. The flat tax won't do anything to attract or retain residents as long as property taxes continue to rise. I'm sorry, I. Just I disagree with that. I disagree with that because I think that if we want to have an argument about do we need to wean ourselves off the property tax and instead look at, I don't know, a sales tax increases because that's typically what's thrown around. Again, I think that that's a fair conversation. But to me, this is to me, this is an income question. Um, Let's see, Jeff. 
Um, we save an income. We left Wisconsin four years ago for Florida. We save on income tax, but car insurance and home insurance is expensive, and the sales tax is 150 basis points more, but we still come ahead. Came back to uh, Christmas in Milwaukee, got deathly sick with 14 degree below temperatures. Well, see, I guess that's my, my point. In Wisconsin, there are many, many great things about the state of Wisconsin, but let's face it, you are, you are fighting weather. But I just think it goes back to a more fundamental question of how is the progressive tax fair? I mean, is it fair to punish people? Because that's what it does, simply because they are, in fact, successful. And do you argue that somebody who, let's say they, they make you know, $100,000, okay, for the sake of argument. Is it, do you say that, oh, that person that's making $100,000, the fact that, you know, they're they're paying, in this case, let's say it's 3.5% because the math is easy, that, that they're, they're not paying their fair share of state tax burden because they're paying $3,500, whereas somebody who makes $40,000 is, is paying a lot less than that. I guess, fundamentally, I just think that the flat tax, first of all, I think it would help attract and retain people in the state of Wisconsin. Secondly, I think it would make us more competitive nationwide because I do think decisions are made by taxes, but tax policy is something that helps make decisions. But more importantly, I also think that it has the factor of Again, allowing us to be more competitive with some of the surrounding states. And if we're going to ever do this, now is the time. Jeff, the liberal mindset is make the rich pay their fair share. What that misses is that people already are paying their fair share. Yeah, that's what I have about this. Jeff, what I like the most about flat taxes is that hopefully everybody is paying something. Right now, we live in a world where lots of people either pay no taxes or very little taxes based on a lot of loopholes. Everybody should pay to be in the state. You know, that's that's also, you know, you want to talk about, like, simplifying the tax structure. One of our texters makes that point. Jeff, the flat tax is great. Take the taxes out right away. Eliminate a ton of paperwork. You don't need half the Department of Revenue. Well, I'm not saying you want to get rid of half the Department of Revenue, but it is it is it is simple. You're not fooling around with loopholes. You're just saying, okay, this is this is what it is. And and yes, the truth is, for some wealthier individuals, they will save money. There, there's no question about it. But what's wrong with that? I mean, I mean, seriously, what is wrong with saying to people, pay less in, in taxes? Because I think it's tough to argue. If you look at what people who make a bunch of money pay in taxes, it's tough to argue that they're not paying their fair share. Everybody has a little bit of skin in the game. The people who make more money have more skin in the game as far as, as having to pay. And maybe, just maybe, it makes Wisconsin a little bit more competitive. And look, okay, you do it. Let's say you, you do this, we give broad-scale tax relief, and then it turns out that it doesn't. It doesn't cause any sort of economic you know, uh, redevelopment. It doesn't make people stay, and then you start to struggle, and you're not raising enough in taxes. Well, then you, you can always kind of tweak it, review it. Maybe 4% is the right amount as opposed to 3.25%. But if we're ever going to try something to really you know, give major league tax relief to citizens of Wisconsin – when, if you're not going to do it when you've got a $7 billion budget surplus, when are you going to do it? We've got a lot of great stuff coming up in the 1 o'clock hour of the program, including 
hey, maybe you want to think twice before robbing a bunch of people at a Houston diner. I'll tell you that story a lot more as well. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. I am curious as to your reaction to this story. And I, I guess that, that if you were going to have a Wagner's rule of life about this, maybe the, the starting point would be think twice before you try to rob a restaurant in Houston, Texas. All right, here, here's the deal. And if you want to see a part of the videotape that's captured on, on store surveillance and some of the pictures, it really is dramatic. You, you can, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got a link to this story. So, so here's the deal. It's about a week and a half ago and there are a number of people and you, you can see this again. It's a, it's a restaurant surveillance camera and it's a, Houston and it's a, a taqueria, you know, it's one of these places. I don't think it's restaurant service. I think you, you know, go up to the counter, you get your food, you sit down. And it's, it's a relatively crowded restaurant. What you see is a guy who's wearing a ski mask and gloves come in and he's carrying what looks like what appears to be a gun. Now, it turns out later on that, that this is a, a fake gun, but nobody knows that. It looks like it's a real gun. The guy who is doing this is, well, he's a 30-year-old. I think it would be fair to describe him as as a career criminal. His name is Eric Eugene Washington, lengthy criminal record. In 2015, he was convicted of a lesser charge of aggravated robbery with a deadly weapon, was sentenced to 15 years in prison in connection with the shooting death of a 62-year-old guy, paroled in 2021, charged with assaulting his girlfriend in December of 2022. So he's lengthy criminal record, but nobody knows that at the time. So if you watch the videotape, what happens is, guy with a black ski mask carrying what appears to be the gun walks into this restaurant and he apparently announces this is a robbery give me all your money and you can see him on the video he goes table to table to table sticking this gun in the face of patrons who are sitting at the various tables and demanding that they give him his wallet so people are throwing you know, like cash they have in their pockets or their wallet and and they're throwing them you know out to him and he's scooping them up and he's going table by table by table so you you get the idea well one of the tables that he one of the tables that he robs it, there's two guys sitting there including this it's this you, it's a 46 year old guy who's eating lunch or dinner or whatever with one of his friends and you can see this you can see the man you know, throws out his wallet or throws out cash or or whatever. Well, as this robber is turns his back on the guy that he's already robbed. So, you no, know, he he's like, I don't know if he's heading for the door or he's looking for like other people to rob, but he's now closer to the door. So he's got his back to the guy who has been robbed. All right. Well, okay. Texas is a concealed carry state. The guy who is sitting in the booth pulls out a handgun, and I've got a very dramatic picture of, of this, this up there. The, the, the rest of the surveillance video, they've taken it off of like public domain, but the, the guy who is sitting in the booth who's been robbed, once the robber turns his back to him, he pulls out his gun and he shoots the robber in the back. All right? 
He actually shoots the robber four times in the back. Robber goes down. He stands up. This would be the, the, the victim, the man who's been robbed, and he fires four more shots. So he essentially empties the clip. He's got an eight-shot. You know, he's got an eight-shot uh, magazine. Boom! He so he fires all eight shots, puts the robber down, kills him. Um, then what he does is he goes up and he, he scoops up some of the money and the wallets and stuff, and he gives it back to the patrons. And then then he leaves. You know, he 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 leaves. The police show up, um, and the guy, apparently people knew who he was, and he agrees to cooperate. Um, His attorney issues a statement saying, in fear of his life and his friend's life, my client acted to protect everyone in the restaurant. In Texas, a shooting is justified in self-defense, defense of others, or in defense of property. The lawyer also says, hey, um, you know, um, this event is very, very traumatic. Taking a human life is something he doesn't take lightly and will burden him for the rest of his life. For that reason, he wishes to remain anonymous, even though he's cooperating with police. So, I mean, the cops know know who he is, and I think some people in the area know who he is. He didn't try to avoid it. It's just his name hasn't become public because he hasn't been charged with anything. So you might say to me, okay, Jeff, where are we going with this? What is the issue? A number of activists in Houston are demanding that the man who shot the would-be robber eight times be charged. Um, Here's the story. Community activists Quanell X and Dr. Candice Matthews are calling for the arrest of the man who shot a Houston taqueria robber eight or nine times. They believe the shooting was excessive. While many people have been calling the man who gunned down a robber um, in the Houston Taqueria a hero, some activists are calling for his arrest. The activists are saying, hey, we're afraid this might be the wild, wild west. And the activists are saying, okay, you know, we think he had every right to shoot him a couple times and, and drop him. But once he was down on the ground, and presumably dead, by the way, when he fired the rest of the shots, that was excessive, and we believe that that is an act of vigilante justice, and we cannot have a society where our citizens are judge, jury, and executioner. All right. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. I, I think that's a fair way to present you know, what happened here. Armed robbery. Armed robber, after taking the man's money, turns his back on him. Guy pulls out a gun. He shoots him four times. He drops him. Then he stands up, puts another four shots into him. Um, Some people are saying he should be charged by the grand jury. Even those people, though, are acknowledging that there was a legitimate right to shoot him in the first place. The question is, because he fired four shots, because he ended up firing eight shots instead of one or two or three or four, is that something that should lead to criminal charges? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a minute. What do you think? 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line. Okay, so I, I think that's a fair recounting of the situation. Guy is in the middle of an armed robbery would-be robber who is a career criminal, sticks a gun in his face, robs a whole bunch of other people in the restaurant, and then once he turns his back on the one man, 46-year-old guy, who happens to be carrying a gun, he pulls out his gun, he shoots the robber four times in the back, he drops him, then he goes and, and stands over him, shoots him another four or five times. There's a little question about whether there were eight or nine shots fired, but he definitely... 
he he definitely makes sure that this robber is not getting up. I think even I think uh, there's no question that the first couple shots killed him. So the question then becomes. All right, should he be charged because he fired multiple shots into the guy, including after he had already put him down? Uh, the general consensus in Texas is no way anybody's touching any of this stuff because there's no way a jury of 12 people is going to convict this guy of anything, given the fact that no one would argue that shooting him in the first place was a legitimate exercise of self-defense. So the question becomes, okay, if you're entitled to shoot him, two times or three times or four times, is it a crime if you shoot him eight times, especially if the first couple shots have killed him? Don't mean to be morbid, but that's the issue. 855-616-1620. Jeff, would activists show up if the robber shot and killed a few customers? No, I don't think so. Jeff, the city owes this man a new box of bullets. By dropping the would-be robber, he saved the city from supporting the guy in jail for the next 20 years. He is a hero. Jeff, I could care less about the robber. He definitely executed him. But what if he reloaded? What if he stomped his head? What if he gets his dinner knife and cuts it? Well, he didn't do any of that stuff. I mean, this was this was all in in the matter of, of, of seconds. But, there, I mean, there's no question that, you know, he, he fired more shots into the guy after the guy was presumably dead on the ground but is that going to be is that going to be a crime uh jeff the good samaritan shooter should be charged with fleeing the scene that's it and i think they'd have a tough time making that one stick brian in watertown brian you're in wtmj good afternoon hello jeff hi brian i guess the first i have or question i have is was this individual shot in the back yes because if he was leaving, he was no longer a threat. Yeah, well, that's something you're taught. Yeah, Brian, that, that's a that's a tougher one because he's still he's still in the restaurant, and you can I think make an argument that he was in the process of robbing other people. It's not like he was out the door and got chased down the street. He was still in there pointing the gun at people. He had just turned his back on the guy that had the gun. So I, I think it, it, it would, it, this isn't a situation where he was out of the door and he was running down the street and the guy chased him. He was still in the store, pointing in the restaurant, pointing guns at people. So I, I, at least that's kind of how I look at that one. I don't think anybody's going to argue that the threat was over. Yeah, it'd be an interesting argument. Uh, you know, again, it, um, there's assumptions and hearsays, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, you, you assume that, you know, that, you know, again, yeah. to that individual with the gun, he was no longer being a threat. He was no longer being threatened. So that right. could be a, an issue for you. Um, excessive shooting, whether you're charged for that or not, I, I don't know how, you know. Yeah. It, it, again, if you knock somebody down and you keep beating beating the hell out of them, when you don't have to, you're very liable for for criminal charges. You know, you're yeah, only but allowed it, to do what is necessary. Right, but in, I guess in this case, let's assume for the sake of argument that the guy is dead after after the, the let's say he fires four shots, bang, 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 and he drops him, and those four shots have killed him. Um, you fire four more shots after that, you can't kill him more than he's already dead. And I think, you know, that's, I, I don't mean to be flip about it, but that's kind of where, where you know, where you're look what you're looking at. Hey, hey, thanks for the call, Brian. I appreciate it. Those are, interest, those are interesting issues. You're, you're right. You are only allowed to use enough force to, um, to end the threat. But I guess to me, the question is, 
okay, you've killed somebody after four shots, and then it is excessive. And I will say this. You know, you have a number of police officers who will, and this is always one of the issues, police officers are taught, for example, when confronting a life-or-death situation, you shoot to end the threat. That's why oftentimes... It, it's not what, what police officers will do is if they've got the, the semi-automatic handgun and let's say it's got eight rounds in it or nine rounds or whatever it is, they'll, they'll fire. Boom, 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 boom. They, they don't fire twice to see what happens. They they fire. They fire repeatedly. They generally speaking. That, so that's why. It's, well, why did you need to shoot two twice? Why did you need to shoot eight times? You know, you could have killed him with with two. And it's because they're they're taught to end the to make sure they end the threat. Now, in this case, I, I think it's pretty clear the first four shots kind of dropped the guy, so that threat was over. But if you're on a jury, are you going to convict this guy of excessive force under these circumstances where you have somebody that was robbing all these people at gunpoint, uh, especially in Houston, Texas? Um, 855-616-1620. Let's talk to Dave in Greenfield. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm good. What do you think? Do you charge this guy with a crime? No, no. I think what it is is um, he was frustrated for what was going on, and I think he just, you know, made sure the guy was dead. Because if he doesn't kill that guy, how do you know the guy doesn't kill a few people, a few innocent people in there? I mean, I think that was basically the case. I think he was frustrated, pulled his gun, shot a four in the back, and then just went up to him and shot him four more times. I think it was out of frustration, maybe out of fear even. You know? Well, or, or, or you, know, you know, I was thinking when I'm listening to you talk, I, I don't know if it's frustration, but, but maybe you're caught up in the moment. I, I mean, this, okay, you're, you're yeah. in this, you know, you're sitting there, you're having lunch or whatever, and somebody wearing a ski mask sure. comes in and sticks what you believe is a gun in your face and you know, is threatening to kill you, is threatening to kill the guy that you're with, is robbing everybody that's there. I, I think that there's, I'm sure this like kind of adrenaline takes over. And I mean, I don't mean oh, yeah. to channel the Dirty Harry movie, but the guy's probably not counting yeah. how many shots he fired. You know, it's just, boom, I'm trying to take out yeah, the threat. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. That, that's how yeah. I feel about it. I, you know, and it probably was racing in his head before he pulled the gun. It's like, hey, this guy's got to be killed before he kills some of these innocent people here. And yeah. No, thanks for the call, Dave. No, I... I no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, I think that that's, I, I think that that's, that's it. It's kind of, I, I think you have this excited sort of moment. See, to me, if I'm the prosecutor looking at this, it's, it, the, the question is, okay, was, was the initial shooting legitimate? And, and I think everybody would argue this is a legitimate exercise of self-defense. Then it becomes a lot more dicey to say, okay, well, he would have been all right. Three bullets would have been fine. Four bullets would have been fine. Five, that's too many. You're, you're starting to talk about angels dancing on the head of pins. I mean, his intent was to kill the guy because he felt legitimately so that his life was in danger, so he was using deadly force. And to me, I guess that's the, the question. It was the deadly force if you were allowed to use deadly force in the beginning, the the degree in, in a matter of seconds, boom, 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 the degree, I think it's tough to it's tough to argue. It's tough to say, okay, 
it, this has gone from a legitimate use of force to now this is a crime. And I'm trying to picture finding a jury in Houston, Texas, that 12 people who are going to agree beyond a reasonable doubt that this guy committed a crime. I just, as a practical matter, I don't think it happened. Jeff, I'm as liberal as they come, but it sounds like the guy operated well within the confines of Texas law. If these activists want to change it, they need to change the law. I think um, I think that they have to work at that. Jeff, just because the guy is on the ground doesn't mean he's dead. I've shot a deer and it was lifeless for 10 minutes, and then he gets up and runs again. The guy may have passed out, but he could wake up and start firing. Well, I guess that's an occasion, too. I just look at this, and the, the lesson to come from this entire thing to me, and and certainly in Houston, Texas, but maybe everywhere, you know, we live in a concealed carry world right now, and when you walk into these public places carrying a firearm and you try to hold people up at gunpoint, you got to understand that there are certain risks that you are taking, and one of those risks is it might turn out well. One of our, uh, I, I posted this, again, if you want to see the video of this, or at least a limited portion of the video, you can follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 and one of our uh, people responded to that saying, have you ever seen the movie To Hell in High Water, which I, I have, it's a great movie, highly recommend it, and there's a scene where this guy go, these two brothers go in to rob this bank, little bank in Texas, and all of a sudden, everybody in the bank is carrying a gun. <laughs> they pull out the guns, their guns, and it turns into a shootout. So it's maybe the lesson is just just don't walk into public places in Texas and try to try to rob people because bad things might happen. One of the big issues in the last gubernatorial election was Tony Evers and his parole commission. Now, Tony Evers came into office four years ago with an announced plan to try to reduce the prison population of Wisconsin by half. The only way you do that is you appoint judges who are going to send fewer people to prison or you release people who are in prison sooner. And it became a huge controversy. And the guy that Evers had selected, a guy named John Tate, um, ended up getting fired by, by Evers because he became a huge political liability. One of the things I said at the time is that it'll be interesting to see who Evers chooses to replace Tate if he is reelected, because I, I think you can make an argument that, that Tate was just by letting out people on on stupid parole releases, he was just doing what what Evers wanted him to do. So now what's happened is Evers has announced his new appointment. John Erpenbach, if the name is familiar to you, he was um, in the state Senate. He's a Democrat from Madison who's just retired from the state Senate after serving 24 years. He has... He's appointed Erpenbach, who, by the way, isn't a lawyer and isn't a prosecutor. He's appointed him to head the parole commission. I, I, I've got a link to a story. Again, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I guess my note is that John Erpenbach has to be a better head of the state parole commission than John Tate was. But still, couldn't Tony Evers have found some experienced former prosecutor somewhere to, to take a job that pays you know pretty well instead of a retired politician? I, I just throw that out there. So Erpenbach can't do worse than John Tate, but it will be interesting to see what the parole commission does moving forward now that Evers has a full four-year term. Are we going to go back to the bad policies we had over the last couple years? Just asking. <laughs> So, very glad to have you with us. <clears throat> let, me, let me make one political prediction here. And, and this is one that you can take to the bank. So, you heard on the news that, that Tony Evers wants the Republicans in the state legislature to vote to put 
an abortion question on the April ballot. Now, it wouldn't be binding, but the question would essentially say, should should abortion be legalized in Wisconsin? Now, why is Tony Evers doing that? Well, Tony Evers, I mean, it's not like he cares about what the results of that is are going to be, because as he's saying, well, you know, we do all these polls, and we know the majority of Wisconsinites support abortion. So well, why, why then why do you need the ballot question? Well, Evers wants the ballot question because he wants to use it as a way of juicing turnout in uh, the state for the state Supreme Court election, because <clears throat> one of the candidates probably the liberal candidate that's going to emerge from this is, I'm sure we'll be upfront about saying, even though it's probably a violation of the judicial code, that they've already made up their mind and they're going to toss Wisconsin's 1850 law with regard to abortion. So Evers wants to bring that abortion issue to the forefront and try to help juice turnout for people who might not otherwise vote. I will just tell you this with absolutely certainty. That idea ain't going anywhere in the Republican-controlled legislature. Now, in the city of Milwaukee, I'm sorry, Milwaukee County, for example, uh, the, the county board has approved putting an advisory abortion question on the ballot. Taxpayers in Milwaukee County are going to pay $16,500 to have that legalized abortion question put on there. And again, the, why is the county board doing it? It's not in an effort to, again, find out something. They don't care about that. Just like the county board, <laughs> when the county board in the last election in November and then four years earlier put referendums on the ballot asking about should marijuana be legalized, it, 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 it was a non-binding referendum. They knew it wasn't going to do anything, but what they were trying to do is they were trying to get people who felt strongly about the marijuana issue who might not otherwise have voted to turn out figuring that they were more likely to vote for, say, Tony Evers or Mandela Barnes. That was what the whole purpose was. In November, the county board put on another question on the ballot about, you know, should essentially, should military-style firearms be, be banned? And it was the same purpose. It really wasn't to provide them with any information. It was try to, to try to generate, you know, voter turnout so they would vote for Democrat candidates. So, I mean, that, that's what they did. Republicans are doing that this year statewide. There is going to be an advisory question about whether or not able-bodied, well, Wisconsin individuals who do not have children should be required to work. And I, I think you can make the same argument that, you know, this is you know, turnabout is fair play. Republicans are doing the same thing to Democrats that Democrats did um, in Milwaukee County, for example, on the marijuana question or on the firearms question. But re- regardless, I can guarantee you that there is no way that the Republicans in the state legislature put an advisory question on the ballot designed to try to turn out more voters who might otherwise not come out and vote because of the abortion issue. The the political reality is it is not going to happen. But putting that aside, there is apparently going to be a question, a referendum question on the ballot that your vote will make a difference in. And that is this question of changing bail. Uh, in order to have a constitutional amendment, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but it's back in the news. In order to amend the state constitution, what has to happen is two consecutive sessions of the legislature have to approve it, and then it has to go to the voters. Well, this bail reform motion was passed by the last legislative session, the one that, that ended at the end of last year. So you've got a new legislature that's in. 
on uh, today and on Thursday, the Assembly and the State Senate are scheduled to vote on this. And my guess is they are going to pass it overwhelmingly, which means it will go on to the ballot this this April. And if it is approved by the voters, it will change the state constitution. So what's going to happen here? Well, the way it works now in Wisconsin is that in setting bail under the Constitution, the only thing that a judge is, for all intents and purposes, allowed to consider is whether the bail will ensure the appearance of the accused in court. That, that's it. You're not entitled to consider how dangerous the um, how dangerous he might be. You're not uh, entitled to consider, at least directly, what the guy's crim- or, or gals, but we'll say guys for the sake of argument, criminal record is, unless it impacts on whether or not he's likely to appear. You can't consider whether he's a danger to the community. Now, this has always been frustrating to me because if you're a regular listener, you know I'm a former federal prosecutor, and in the federal system. You know, bail is twofold. You look at is the person a risk of flight, and you look at is the person a danger to the community. And you have wide latitude to set bail and conditions of release, taking into a fact into account the fact that yeah, is the person going to run, and also is the person if you release him. Is he likely to go out and commit more crimes? And that allows you wide latitude to kind of focus on, all right, and this is this is a dangerous person with a lengthy criminal record who has committed crimes while out on bail before. Why should I just think that if I let him loose again on bail, he's not going to commit even more crimes? So what this constitutional amendment would do would allow judges to look at the totality of the circumstances including a person's previous convictions for violent crimes in determining what the appropriate bail is that, that was set, should be set. So, and if you've got a guy who's, I don't know, wanted, who's, who's charged with domestic assault, and it turns out they've got a record of, you know, three or four armed robbery convictions, you could take into account the fact that, yes, those armed robbery convictions, he's dangerous if we let him out on bail there's a good chance that he's going to commit more crimes. So it gives the judges more latitude. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Old National Bank talk and text line. If this is on the ballot in April, and I believe it's going to be, my guess it passes with about 80% of the popular of, of popular support because I think this is one Will it result in more people perhaps being detained pre-trial? Yeah. Is that a bad thing? I would argue no. Because, I mean, add me to that list of people who is sick to death of dangerous people with lengthy criminal records being released on stupid low bails only to go out and to commit more crimes. And I will tell you that... One of the biggest indicators of whether somebody is going to commit a crime moving forward, what is it? It's whether they have committed crimes in the past. 855-616-1620. I think this is long overdue, and when it's on the ballot, assuming it is in April, I think it's going to pass overwhelmingly. you have any objections or problems with this? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620, which is the old National Bank talk and text line. Jeff, 
bail reform. Would this have had an effect on the Waukesha parade murders and Daryl Brooks's release for a previous crime? I, I, I guess the the complete answer is who knows for sure, but the answer is a definite yes because it would have. I mean, look at the at the end of the day. You're still dependent on court commissioners or judges and prosecutors doing the right thing. Because even though this gives more tools to a court commissioner or a judge in in fashioning bail, because you can consider like the prior record, if, if they don't do their job, well, okay, this you can pass all the laws you want, but if they don't do their job, the person is still going to get out. Now, my argument would be, yeah, that this would almost have to, because I think any time you're looking at somebody that has, for example, a criminal record like Daryl Brooks, to release him time and time again on, on bails after he's committed crimes would be just absolutely, you know, crazy. But, I mean, I, I don't. I, I don't know for sure because, again, that I, I mean, I think you can make an argument that even under the current law, you know, but for the negligence in John Chisholm's office and but for the philosophy that John Chisholm has about releasing people, recognizing that some of these people may, in fact, be dangerous and might be and might commit crimes, that, that that's the philosophy. So. I, I, but yeah, to answer that question, I think it would have made a a difference. Um, so you know that that could be the difference. And, and for everybody that, that's all upset about this, and again, you've got the public defenders that are worked up, and some defense attorneys, and you know Chris Larson, who's the very very liberal state senator from Milwaukee, that I think pretty much nobody likes on either side of the aisle. You know, he said this is making sure that people who are poor will not be able to be released. No. No, this is making sure that people who are dangerous should not be released. Because, I mean, here, here's the deal. If you don't consider the totality of the circumstances, and, and your only factor is, okay, here you have somebody that's been out on bail, they violated the term, they've got a lengthy criminal record, They've been out on bail. They violated the terms and conditions of their bail by committing another crime. Well, okay, do we have any evidence that they're not going to show up? Well, you know, no, we don't have evidence they're not gonna, that they're going to show up. So you just turn them loose on another, bail to, on another low bail to go out and commit a crime, whereas this gives the judge an opportunity to say, look, you, you've had X number of chances, and you, sir, are a career criminal, and I, I gave you, you got a chance, you know, you're out on a $5,000 bail, and now it turns around and you've committed another crime. I believe that you pose a danger to the community. And so I'm not just going to look at are you likely to show up, but also I'm likely, I'm going to decide are, are you likely to go attack victims or to violate the, you know, terms and conditions of your release. I think it's just, I mean, I actually think that this is a no-brainer when it comes to this, and that's, I guess that's kind of the bottom line, this will pass overwhelmingly, and the bottom line of all this is, like I say, this is just, it's pretty similar to what's going on and what we've had in the federal system for a number of years, and, and that seems to, I think, work pretty well. You want somebody to appear, but you also don't want somebody to be out committing crimes. I, I, just so you... Don't think I'm making this up. I, I have a link to this story. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 Okay, San Francisco has 
this, they call it the African-American Reparations Advisory Committee, which exists to advise the city on developing a plan for reparations for black residents. Now, it gets a little dicey because um, California was never technically a slave state. So, you know, that, that, that becomes dicey. But this committee exists to advise the city on, again, to address public policies explicitly created to subjugate black people in San Francisco by upholding and expanding the intent and legacy of chattel slavery. So they have now come out with their recommendations. Here's what this committee is recommending. The draft plan includes a long list of financial recommendations for black San Francisco residents, including a one-time lump sum payment of... Now, I want, I want you to think of a dollar amount. Okay, think of a dollar amount. $100, $500, $5,000, $10,000. Think of a dollar amount. Okay, got that dollar amount in your mind? One-time lump sum payment of $5 million to each eligible individual. They say a lump sum payment would compensate all the affected population for the decades of harms that they have experienced. To be eligible for the program, you must be 18 years old, must have identified as African-American on public documents for 10 years, and you must have been born in San Francisco between 1940 and 1996. But it's not just... It's not just $5 million lump sum. The plan also calls for the city to supplement lower income recipients' income to guarantee they will get $97,000 annually for at least 250 years. The plan also seeks to establish a comprehensive debt forgiveness program that clears each eligible person's student and housing loans, credit card debt, etc., The committee submitted the draft proposal to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors on December 23rd. They have not yet received any feedback from the board. Let me give you some perspective. Forgetting about all the debt forgiveness and the guaranteed $97,000 a year, if you were to give every eligible person under this plan $5 million, it would total about $55 billion. $55 $55 billion. The budget of the entire city of San Francisco is $14 billion. And, and if you then start adding in all the other stuff, you're talking about tens of billions of dollars more. This is the type of thing to me to say. And look, I, I don't know how you – I think that the issue of reparations is – is one that you know maybe we need to to confront in certain circumstances, and I think that the idea of lump sum payments is probably not going to go anywhere. But you know maybe you argue that there's other things that could be done to you know promote racial equality or things like that. But you know five million dollars a person, plus all this other stuff, it just tells you that the people when you do stuff like this, it's just not serious. It's just not serious at all. And when you come out with these ridiculous sort of proposals, all it does is uh, attract all sorts of other attention to people saying the folks in San Francisco are obviously what we've always suspected they were, which is absolutely crazy. Five million dollars. Hey, when we come back, yesterday was a really interesting program. Only had an hour show, and I I know a lot of people were off because of the holiday. I want to 
kind of double back on something we talked about. I want to talk about health care, specifically stuff that's going on in Milwaukee, but also the problem we're having with nurses. We're going to talk about condos. We're going to talk about metal detectors. All that is coming up. The third hour of the Wagner Show starts right after the news. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Couple, I, I want to start off by kind of circling back to a topic we, we discussed in, in a slightly different form in yesterday's show. And like I said, yesterday was, um, of course, you know, the Martin Luther King holiday. And so I know a lot of people were listening, as they always do. But at the same time, I, I know listening patterns might be a little off. We We spent at least one segment of the program talking about the problems that they're having at at the Ascension hospitals. Um, Of course, in in southeastern Wisconsin, the the three major health providers, you've got Aurora, you've got Fredert, and you've got Ascension. Now, I always do this disclosure. Um, I am a patient. At, I mean, my I have get my health care through Freightert. They are a sponsor of the program for the last 15-plus years. We do their everyday health features. So I, I throw that out at, at, at the beginning. Um, Ascension has had a lot of problems lately. There, there's controversy because they're closing the birthing center at their St. Francis Hospital. Uh, the story... There was a story in Milwaukee Magazine and a previous story in the New York Times in December that just ripped Ascension, not the Milwaukee particularly, but just the, the entire hospital network as being essentially a mess because for years the idea was let's cut jobs and, and let's what we can do in an effort to try to make money, even though it's supposedly nonprofit, in, in order to generate revenue, let's, let's get rid of you know, people. And so the idea is, like, how many patients can we have if, you know, let's reduce the amount of employees we have per patient bed, and we can save all this money, and we can make a bunch of dough. And, in fact, the, a lot of the bigwigs that run Ascension, they, they made a whole bunch of dough. The most recent story that the Journal Sentinel had a week or so ago was that uh, Columbia St. Mary's, which used to be, I, I think, you know, a, a real crown jewel in hospitals around here, they had recently announced that apparently they were uh, canceling or delaying all their elective surgeries until at least into to February. And what really got me about it is apparently there was a memo that went out that said when doctors call people and tell them it, it offered a suggested script, which is when doctors call people and tell them that, hey, your, your hip surgery has been replaced, has been put off, your knee surgery has been replaced. Um, they, they essentially not tell them why, <laughs> just not tell them the truth, which I thought was, you know, I, I think your know, issues with this. Well, the, the problem it all comes down to, and it's not a problem in fairness that I think is unique to Ascension, because I think the other hospitals are experiencing this as well. The, the problem <clears throat> comes down to a lack of staffing. And and that lack of staffing, there's a lot of different factors that have gone into it. But if you you know don't, don't have the doctors to birth the babies, well, you, you can't have the birthing center open. If you don't have the doctors or the nurses 
to, you know, perform, you know, the various procedures or to assist in the various procedures or to do the rehabs or whatever, you, you, you can't go ahead and, and do this. And it's really a case, it seems to me, an ascension of the chickens kind of coming home to roost. You cut and you cut and you cut, and then you throw in COVID with all the added pressures that that put on hospital employees. And then you add in the fact that at least a certain percentage of hospital employees were let go because they didn't want to get the vaccines. And and you've got just a, a stone cold mess. There was a story in the Washington Post two days ago. Why nurses say they are striking and quitting in droves? More than seven thousand. is the headline. More than seven thousand union nurses went on strike in New York City this past week over concerns about understaffing and patient care. Workplace tensions are boiling over around the country this winter. And then it goes on to talk about <clears throat> again seven thousand nurses that went on strike in New York. Healthcare workers. Um, that there have been you know multiple at least seven different strikes of healthcare workers of at least a thousand workers since January of 2022. And they're, they're talking about how this understaffing has plagued hospitals and medical centers nationwide. The pandemic adds on to this. And then you just have a, a lot of people who are just saying, I'm getting out of the profession. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the old National Bank talk and text line. Now, again, I yesterday we, we talked about Ascension and I, I, I think there is, a larger issue that's out there as well. I think around here, you know, Ascension's problems are just kind of magnified because of some stuff. But I, I don't doubt that it's similar problems that what other major hospitals are having. And that is that people are leaving the profession in droves and that you're not attracting enough new people to come in. Now, my, my granddaughter, she's, a, she's in the nursing program at the University of Minnesota. She's a first-year student, and her mom, her mom is a nurse, and so you know, she wants to be a nurse, and a, a specialty that's eluding me at, at the moment, but she's got a, lot, a long way to go. But I, I want to have this broader term because, <clears throat> look, when, when I need health care, I, I want I want there to be doctors and I want there to be nurses that can take care of me if I if I have to go in. My guess is you probably feel the same way. And yet we're in a position now where you can't get people to do the job. What is the answer? How bad is this problem? And what is this answer? And I, I think, you know, I mean, I think a lot of these these medical systems, medical centers, etc., they're they're kind of I don't you mean to use the cliche reaping what they sowed, but they are reaping what they've sowed. But now where do we go from here? 855-616-1620, that's the that's the old National Bank talk and text line back to discuss in just a moment. And if you are in the healthcare industry and particularly if you work as a nurse, I'd be delighted to talk to you and find out what your job is like on a regular basis. 855-616-1620. Now, I, I, don't, I don't want this to turn into a, let, let's beat up on a hospital system, or a, but the, 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 the texts and tweets and stuff I'm getting, and if, if, you want to, if, you, again, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 I've got a link to the story about the, the elective surgeries at Columbia St. Mary's being canceled. Jeff, I went to the ER at St. Mary's Ozaki in Mequon on Tuesday last week after a slip and fall with a head injury. The nurse who checked us in immediately told us not to expect an MRI because they didn't have the staff to run it. Also said the cath lab was closed after 5 p.m. Wow. 
Uh, Jeff, no respect for nurses, short staffing, dangerous and violent clients. Um, that's a problem. Um, Jeff, I used to work for St. Mary's. They've really gone downhill. It's sad. I think there's no appreciation for nurses either. Um, well, I think, you know, that's, that's it, Jeff. I love nursing, but would never advise someone to be one. Um, it's good that you can work different shifts, etc. So that was good for family life. But 855-616-1620. Let's start with Valerie in New Berlin. Valerie, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm calling because I've been a nurse for roughly 30 years. And I, me and a lot of my coworkers have literally had to walk away because they are over, they are understaffing us. We are getting the troubled patients and all that, but that's always been there. But when you have less and less people to take care of them, when there becomes a problem, unfortunately, instead of it being just that life happens, instantly it all falls down to a nurse's mistake. Nobody mm-hmm. else is held accountable. It all drops down on us nurses. And that's sad because it's not always, I mean, yes, nurses make mistakes. Don't misunderstand me. But a lot of it has nothing to do with what we're doing. But yet we're held accountable. So what do you think the answer is, Valerie? I mean, obviously this is a crisis when you have, you know, when when, there, when there's just not enough personnel, there's not enough nurses to, to staff procedures and things like that. What, what, how do we get ourselves out of this? Well, it's not that the nurses aren't out there. The problem is they are pushing us so far to the limit, we can't handle it. When I uh-huh. should have maximum six to eight patients, and they're giving me 10 to 12, there's, there's yeah. no safe way to do that. And it's yeah. not because the nurses aren't out there willing, willing to work. They just don't want to pay the money to bring them in. Because I've also done staffing as a nurse. And they want you to keep it at this certain level where it's costing them virtually nothing. But we still need to get them in, you know? Yeah. No, thanks for calling, Valerie. I, I, I appreciate it. Jeff, I work in the ICU. All the easier assignments are going to traveler nurses because they aren't fully trained. The traveler nurses, I, if I understand that correctly, that's the you don't work for the particular facility. What you do is you're kind of like an, an at-large you get hired for a few weeks or a couple months or whatever. That means I get the most challenging patients every shift for the past three years. They get paid more than double my salary. Uh, Chris in Fond du Lac. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. What's going on and what do you think? Well, I'm going to preface this by saying that the nursing that I do is a little bit different than hospitals and clinics. Um, I go and it's kind of doing travel nursing, but in people's homes, and I go front, like all over Wisconsin, Illinois, sure. Michigan, all over the place. Sure. But um, I do have a lot of colleagues that are still in the hospitals and clinics. And before I started this, I was working in a clinic as well. And a big part of this is being in healthcare, especially these days, is a headache. There is a lot of, you, you do a lot of training and a lot of education to essentially, you know, you have to deal with the burdens of doctors and patients and all that other stuff, and you don't get paid enough. Now, I took a huge pay increase with the job I have now, but for example, if I were to still work in the setting that I 
left from, I would be making less money than my oldest kid is right now, and he works at a cheese factory right out of high school. And, I mean, it's, it's, and he's been doing that for way less time than I've been in healthcare. So if the situations want to change, I mean, as the other caller stated, these patients got to start treating the other allied staff better and start paying them more. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. It's not an attractive position, especially for the younger crowd, when they can go work at Amazon or Walmart and make the same amount of money for less of the headaches and a whole lot less money spent on the education part of it. So did, did I understand you correctly say, Chris, the, 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 the traveling nurses, the people that come in you know, for, for hire for a month or two, that in general they're, they're making a lot more than the regular nurses that are there? Is that, is that, is, is that kind of oh, across the absolutely. industry? Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Now, the travel nursing that I do, I work for a specialty pharmacy. Right. So I'm not like the travel nurse that like works for staffing, but I do know of a travel nurse that he's been doing it for years and years and years. He works for 22, 23 weeks out of the year and coaches basketball the rest of the year, and he's well into the six figures for pay. Well, hey, thanks so for the perspective. Nurses, I, they, make, you, they make money hand over foot. No, th- thanks for calling. I pre- I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, wait, I, and look, and I, I understand nursing is completely different than what I do, but I'm trying to think of, okay, if if I'm one of the signature voices on WTMJ Radio, and I've been doing this for 25 years, and you've got this list of awards and things like that, and I found out that they were paying my fill-ins <laughs> more money than they're paying me, I would be unhappy with that. You know, it's just, and, and maybe the fill-ins are worth more than me, but it's just kind of, okay, well, you know, we need to fill in for you when you're gone, so and, and that's just not, that's not the way it works in a normal setting, but apparently in healthcare, it's is um let's talk to uh let's greg in pleasant prairie greg you're on wtmj good afternoon hi jeff how are you good uh, what do you think background. i've been i've been in healthcare as an underwriter actuary and economist for 40 years and i've been all over wisconsin and here's the crux of what's going on um two things national trends Systems are taking over other systems. For example, Aurora is not Aurora anymore, and they merged with Advocate, and they're not even Advocate anymore. They're now run by Atrium out of North Carolina. And the issue is, and it was published in the Wall Street Journal last week, is these larger systems are pulling their clinics and their hospitals out of areas that serve a majority of Medicare and Medicaid patients. Unfortunately, the largest insurance company in the world is Medicare and Medicaid. And the problem with that is when you look at your Medicare and Medicaid bills when they're paid, they only pay somewhere between 15 and 25 cents on the dollar. And uh, the word out there right now is that the government is looking at cutting providers, uh, physicians, uh, and professional providers another 13 to 14% in terms of their reimbursement, which is crazy. So the only insurance company in the world that controls its own pricing and tells the providers what they're going to pay is our government, and they continue Mm -hmm. to cut the fees that they pay. So uh, now there is a trend that is not a good trend where the number of nurses being hired is kind of on a 45% decline, while the number of administrators is kind of on a 45% incline, which is unfortunate. <laughs> but but that but that but what that has to do with is all of the payers out there, all of the insurance companies, along with the government, and all of the new plans that are created, uh, it, it, it takes administrative staff 
Uh, I had a right. good friend who was CEO of one of the hospitals, and he had to hire just three pe- three to four people, cost him around $200,000 a year just to handle the insurances, which is crazy. So, you, you know, when you look at the crux of all of this stuff, it, it, a lot of it goes back to how the government is, is involved. And when you have as many people on Medicaid and Medicare as you have, and they a lot of them live in a certain area, well, if I have a clinic or a ho- especially a hospital down there, and that's all that, you know, that's the majority of my patients, every time one of them comes in the door, I lose money. I, I can't right. make it on that. So, you know, this is just kind of the way the national trends are moving. And the other part of that that kind of disgusts me is I have a friend who did a Ph.D. study and essentially and guess how much money we lose in medic in, in medical fraud and waste every year through government through the government plans an average over the last decade of 350 billion so you know wow. when you look at all of those factors together uh, you, you have to it's understand, a train wreck. There's, understand that <laughs> yeah. there's two there's two sides of the story you know yeah hey thanks for the perspective i, I appreciate it I, I you know and it's just this is a crisis that that i think We've got to figure out how to deal with Jeff. Just a different perspective. Hospitals spend so much money remodeling these hospitals, but they don't have the ability to pay the staff. Any hospital you walk into is constantly remodeling. They need to be able to have the sta- to pay the staff before you have a remodeled hospital. I, I do think that that's that's a factor. Now, like I I love walking into these hospitals and. And, and you go, oh, my gosh, this is great. Look at this wonderful atrium. Hey, you got a piano there, and you've got all this great sort of stuff. But at the same time, all that sort of stuff costs um, money with regard to that. Um, Jeff, my niece is a travel nurse making $100 an hour plus a stipend for housing and a car. She's about 25 years old. Here's another text. Jeff, travel nurses make about 120 an hour. Staff nurses, 60 to 70. It's very demoralizing. I've been an ICU nurse for eight years. We, we need the staff. And I mean, I, I'm not faulting the travel nursing, but again, it is a, <laughs> it's, I mean, and I, I don't, Look, I, I appreciate people doing whatever they can to make money. Now, the travel nurses aren't getting benefits, I don't think, as a general rule. So maybe that kind of evens out. But I can understand how, you know, you've been working at a place for eight years in ICU, and somebody you, you bring in somebody new with no experience doing that who's not as skilled as you are in that particular. They can't necessarily work in the ICU, and you find out they're making 40 bucks more. It, it's It's a system that is badly, badly, badly out of whack, and the healthcare industry needs to figure out how to make this work, and I'm not sure if government intervention has made it better or worse. <laughs> Okay, smoke, 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 that cigarette. Here, here are the numbers, and it, it's kind of, it's not surprising. On one, on one hand, it's not surprising. On the other hand, it is. There's a, a new study that's out by the Wisconsin Policy Forum. Okay, here is the deal. In, 20, in 2001, so 22 years ago, 420 million packs of cigarettes were sold in Wisconsin. 420 million. In 2022, 193 million packs of cigarettes were sold in Wisconsin. So that, that's a drop of, um, you know, over, over 50%. Substantial drop in the number of packs of cigarettes. Now, that, that's not, I don't have the number of smokers, but 
I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, if, if cigarette, the number of packs that sold in Wisconsin has declined by more than 50 percent, that tells you the number of smokers have gone down. Cigarette sales taxes has had a dramatic drop in 2010. Taxes on cigarettes generated $644 million in state taxes. That was about 4% of total state taxes in Wisconsin came from the $644 million that was generated by the cigarette sales tax. Last year, cigarette sales generated uh, $482 million, or 2% of all taxes collected by the state. And the the tax rate on cigarettes has gone up a couple times since 2010. So the, the bottom line of all this is that fewer packs of cigarettes are being sold, um, fewer dollars in state tax revenue are being generated by the cigarette tax. And I think you could argue that that's, that, that's, a, good, that, that's a good thing. Um, if we accept the premise that cigarette smoking is not good for you. And this isn't a lecture on that, but it, it's just, let, let's face it. I mean, I think, you know, there's some stuff that you can argue about. How harmful is it? You know, is it really harmful? Can you drink a glass of red wine a day? Is that good for you? Is that bad for you? Can you have a beer? Is it good for you? Is it bad for you? But I don't think anybody would argue that the cigarette smoking is is expensive and, and it's bad for you. But the thing that really struck me uh, about this wasn't so much that you had 420 million packs of cigarettes that were sold 22 years ago. It's that last year in Wisconsin, there were still 193 million packs of cigarettes sold, which tells me there, <clears throat> there's still, you know, a lot of people that are out there, you know, smoking. Now, if you look at this, um, one of the things they find is that the amount of young people um, 18 to 24 year olds smoking is a lot less now than it was 10 years ago. Say, used to be 23 percent of that age group. Now it's down to only about 8 percent of people who are that young people who are regular smokers. And I think, you know, obviously, I think a lot of people who are smokers made the decision. They started smoking when they were younger, and then it becomes a habit, and then they just end up continuing to do it. But but having said all that, I guess I'm still struck by the 193 million packs of cigarettes that are are sold in in Wisconsin because that tells me that there's a lot of people out there who are smoking. Now this this segment of the Wagner program is a judgment-free zone. I I promise you that. But I I got to admit, I don't understand this. Now this is from my perspective as somebody who is a, is a non-smoker. Never Never smoked cigarettes. I mean, I have, I have did I have an occasional cigarette over the time? Yeah, never did anything for me. Never smoked cigarettes. An occasional cigar back when I was younger. Don't do that anymore at all. I just I, I just don't do it. Um, but I've never understood the the, the cigarette the cigarette smoking. I get it, particularly maybe for people who are a little bit older, who you know started smoking maybe thirty years ago or 40 years ago, where the the questions of, is it good, is it bad, it was a little bit more arguable. For the life of me, I I, I don't understand why, you know, how how 9 or 10% of the people ages 18 to 24 can be regular cigarette smokers. Just, you know, knowing what we know now, how people can can make that decision that they're going to start smoking, because I see that as two different things. It's one thing if you've been smoking for years and years and years and you just can't quit after trying. Okay, I get that. 
but it's 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 the people who start smoking on a regular basis that just makes absolutely no sense to me at all. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Old National Bank talk and text line. Now, again, this is a judgment-free segment, but I, I'm very legitimately curious. What what is What is going on? For those of you who are regular smokers, what... Why do you do it? I mean, and again, not lecturing about this, but why do you do it? It's expensive. I think most of us could agree that it. You can argue about how bad it is for you, but it's not good for you. Period. So why? Why are so many? Why are we still consuming 193 million packs of cigarettes in Wisconsin? In 2022, 855-616-1620. That's the old National Bank talk and text line we discuss in a moment. Smoking in the boys room. Smoking in the boys room. It is amazing to me. And, and yeah, the, the, those numbers that I, I cited are correct. The uh, 193 million packs of cigarettes sold in 2022 i you know i I can tell you how much a gallon of milk costs i i I had to look it up during the break as to how much and now i I understand that there's if you go to you know buy cigarettes in a duty-free store on a reservation or something like that it might be cheaper but um i I couldn't tell you how much a pack of cigarettes costs except i looked at my chart here and average retail pack price per pack it varies by state but in wisconsin it says $7.67 a pack. That includes $2.89 in state taxes, and it includes um, a dollar, a little over a dollar in federal taxes. So um, it, that, that, it is an expensive habit. James in Pewaukee. James, you're on WTMJ. Hey, good afternoon. Um, Hi, James. Well, I guess I may have jumped ahead. I may have jumped the gun a little bit here. I thought what we were going is why people continue to smoke and, and, and yeah. what have you, uh, and why young people begin to smoke. And, and I, I mean, quite honestly, the, I, I don't think the reasoning's ever really changed. It's, it's still a rebellious behavior. It still starts mostly when people are in their, whether they're in high school or their late teens or in college. And a great number smoke during high school and in college and, and never and stop. And, and it's not yeah. a lifelong habit. But a percentage of them continue. And as long as we live in a state with 6 million people, there's going to be a significant people, a percentage of people who continue this, probably to the tune. I think it's what, I think one in four or one in five adults in Wisconsin smoke. So, I mean, it doesn't surprise me necessarily that a lot of them are between a half and a, and a pack of cigarettes a day. So, you know, the math's not that difficult. I mean, 365 days a year. I, I was kind of going to guess, like, it's probably a couple hundred million packs of cigarettes, and it's mind-blowing to me. I've never smoked in my life, but I've done plenty of else things, you know, other things that are wrong, but... No, no, I, no, th- no. Thanks for the call, James. And look, and I, I get it. This is that's why this is kind of this judgment-free zone. And I, I again, I, I understand. You know, forty years ago, if you started smoking before, you know, we we took seriously, perhaps, you know, how bad this was. I, I get it. And you ended up getting addicted, and I. I I've told this story before. I, I have a friend who is um, substantially older than me, and, and he quit smoking, got 35, 40 years ago, because he, he recognized it was bad for his health. But, you know, he, he, he always said he enjoyed it. He, he's always told me, he said, if he ever got diagnosed with a terminal illness, you know, he's, he's having a cigarette. He said he just, he loved 
<clears throat> everything about that. He loves sitting back after a nice meal and having a cup of coffee and, and smoking a cigarette. He he truly enjoyed it. Now I don't I don't get that, but that's it. Jeff, the topic is timely. I gave up vaping for the new year. I'm forty seven years old. I've never been a smoker, but I had an extremely stressful last year, started vaping, and it has been impossible to quit, but I'm seventeen days into it. Well, go with God. I think that's great. You know, that that is the you know, th- that's the other side of this story is we talk about the number of cigarettes that have been sold but uh, going down, but the number of people who are, are vaping um, just up dramatically. Jeff, when in line at a cigarette at a convenience store, I always look at the people who are buying cigarettes and I wonder how can they afford them. Um, I, I, I just <clears throat> I mean, I, I'm thinking now maybe if you're buying cartons or something, it, you, you get discounts and all. But if, <clears throat> if you've got a, a, a pack a day cigarette habit, that's. That's over, you know, 50 bucks a week, you know, just to to support that. And and again, I'm not lecturing, but I'm thinking, wow, Jeff, I quit uh, smoking. I smoked two. I smoked two pack of days in January of 1996 to this day. I still have dreams that I smoke cigarettes or I'm holding a cigarette for a friend and I end up smoking that cigarette. I wake up feeling like I have just smoked. It's a ridiculously stupid habit. I, I, you know, I thank God on a daily basis that I do not have an addictive personality because I, I mean, whether it's cigarettes or whether it's alcohol or whether it's gambling, I mean, I, I do I enjoy a, a beer and a good bourbon? Yeah, I do. But I just, I don't have that addictive personality, but I know people who, who can, um, Jeff, I don't know how people can afford to smoke. Um, I know some of these cigarettes are around 10 or 11 bucks a, a pack. Jeff, nicotine is a drug and drugs are fun. And now we're addicts. Besides, some of us don't want to live until we're 95. It seems awful. Give me 70 years and I'm out. Well, <clears throat> okay, that, that's the old joke about, you know, George Burns, old joke. Who wants to live? Who wants to live to be 100? Well, somebody who's 99, you know. It's, so I'll, I'll talk to that texture again when he's 69 to see whether um, 70 works. Mike in Germantown. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Mike. How are you today? I'm good. Now, you're an ex-smoker? Uh, yes, I quit about two years ago. Um, I'm 55. I started smoking when I was about 15. Okay. Um, just off and on uh, socially. And uh, then I went into the military and um, became a full-time, full-fledged smoker. Yep. And smoked for about 30 years. I uh, started vaping about two years ago at the advice of my doctor, believe it or not. Okay. So are so do you do you find yourself like addicted to vaping now? Yes. I, I think yeah. it's probably just just as much addictive, if not more so. Yeah. Yeah, that's hey, hey thanks thanks for calling Mike. I appreciate it. First of all, congratulations on, on giving up the, the butts, but that's that's what you hear about vaping and it's it's just <clears throat> I, I always wonder about that because you know, some people say, "Well, you know, vaping is 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 a transition. You, know, you can it's better than if it helps get you off smoking, then then it's great." But the problem is, and I've talked to a lot of people like Mike who who've just said, "Well, it's just, you're just trading one sort of uh, addiction." for another. Jeff, I started smoking in boot camp in the Army. It's a horrible addiction that I've battled for decades. See, and, and again, I, I understand that. I guess that's, if I want to bring the topic around to where we started, I, I think it's it's good that fewer cigarettes are being sold, even though that costs everybody tax money. I think that's a good thing. But <clears throat> the, the thing 
and I, I certainly understand you you 30 or 40 years ago you start smoking you don't necessarily realize all the problems you get addicted you've got that habit it's just it's always just mind-blowing to me though when you walk into you, you go into the bar or the restaurant or something um, on a cold January evening and you see all these people particularly even like younger people who are huddled outside you know the, the bar because they don't allow smoking in there you know having their cigarette and you just kind of want to figuratively speaking, grab them and say, what are you thinking, young lady or, or young man? What are you thinking in, in doing this? Don't you realize this isn't going to be good for you? Just saying. 1-800-848-9222. 